This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks. The International Energy Agency was founded to protect oil supplies. Now it is proposing for a ban on fossil fuels extraction. What can this mean for Asia, which is still hugely reliant on fossil fuels? On today's show, we're going to talk about a new report from the IEA, which suggests that there should be no new supply in fossil fuels from this point on, if the world is to meet the Paris Agreement goals to limit global warming. The report also says that coal in rich countries should be phased out by 2030, gas power phased out by 2035, and all coal and gas burning gone by 2040. To unpack what this could mean for energy and the planet, we're going to talk to Peter Kiernan, who is lead energy analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you, Robin. Great to have you on the show. So the IEA's report is one of the most widely covered climate reports of the year, as far as I can tell. You know, many major news outlets, including The Economist, have covered it. Why, Peter, is it so important? Um, well, it is important, um, and I'll just explain some of the background to the IEA and how it was founded and how its role has evolved. So it began in the 1970s, mainly as a response to the oil crisis that happened back then when it was realised by the rich um, energy-consuming economies that they needed to coordinate uh, their policies and actions with regard to oil and energy security. And it's since then evolved into a very important research organisation across the whole energy spectrum. And more recently, that has included the climate aspect of the energy market. Um, So this is the first time they've done such a scenario of what would the energy system be like globally if there were net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. And it came about as a response, a growing number of calls for the IEA to do something like this over the last few years uh, from investors, from nonprofits, and then more recently from governments such as the UK to outline a scenario of what it would be like if the global energy system had net zero emissions by 2050 based on the goal of limiting the global average temperature increase to 1.5 degrees, uh, which is the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, There had been previous criticism of the IEA scenarios because its central scenario, which it calls its stated policy scenario, um, which is basically an estimate of what would happen based on stated policies by current governments, that it would not lead to the uh, ideal outcome of limiting the global average temperature to 1.5 degrees and that there needed to be more focus on what needed to be done. So there's all these scenarios and it's a case of making the 1.5 degrees scenario about giving that a lot more prominence, which is what was released last week, which is why it's so important and why it's generated so much debate. One key element of the report Um, is the recommendation that there can be no new supply of fossil fuels from this point on, which is a bit of a bombshell given the context that you've just explained that that IEA used to be basically um, was founded to to protect um, oil supplies, right? So, So how much weight do you feel that bit of the statement has, Peter, that no new fossil fuels extraction? Yeah, well, that's an interesting one. The IEA wouldn't say that it was a recommendation, that um, the whole report itself outlines a pathway, not the pathway, but a pathway to net zero emissions. 
and that uh, on this pathway there's something like 400 milestones and this is one of these early milestones I guess. So what they said was that there'd be no new investment in oil and gas exploration um, or investment in coal mining exploration as well. So that doesn't mean zero investment in upstream oil and gas tomorrow. What it means is that allowing for continued investment in development of fields that are currently producing or fields that are under development, uh, but no more investment in exploration of new fields, um, basically because under their scenario of oil consumption falling about 80% over the next 30 years that it would not be required. So that is a development that they highlighted as part of this scenario. And it's quite significant that um, the IEA have come up with something like this. Um, but of course it is predicated on the whole system moving towards much lower consumption of fossil fuels as well. It doesn't mean that countries have to apply this. The IEA has no prescriptive power at all. But I think it's important because it sets an interesting tone for the link between energy and climate going forward. And I think there's been a change over the last 12 months. Um, if you see the uh, net zero uh, pledges made by countries such as China, South Korea and Japan, the change of, of administration in the US, um, you also have the EU, which will formalise the commitment to net zero emissions this year. So there's a lot happening on the policy front, which is shifting the needle towards more accelerated decarbonisation. And this net zero report by the IEA is very much more grist for the mill, I guess, towards that, because it means that the narrative that, well, the IEA have always been saying that the world would need plenty of oil, gas and coal for several decades to come, which they only ever said, given a certain scenario that they um, have highlighted, that that can't be so easily defended from now on if we are serious about heading towards net zero emissions by mid-century. Interesting. So, yeah, going back to that, that point specifically about um, no new extraction of fossil fuels. Now, I want to ask you about the context um, in Asia, where we're both speaking from. So a few Asian countries um, last week, in fact, Japan, Australia and the Philippines have taken issue with specifically that not recommendation, but pathway stated in the um, IEA's report saying that there are many paths to net zero and that stopping all new fossil fuels development would hurt their economies and energy security. Um, what do you make of, of that view, that argument, Peter? Yeah, well, it's important to take into account that each economy will have its own pathway and the burden of responsibility in the nearer term does lie with uh, the high-income economies, partially because if you want to look at emissions historically, because they accumulate, of course, um, the developed world is, is responsible for most of the world's emissions. CO2 stays in the atmosphere for several hundred years. Then it's a bit unfair to expect industrialising economies to do things at the same pace as already um, developed economies. So that's why the Paris Agreement came into place, because it allowed for responsibility overall, but a differentiation in timing. However, given that that is the case, um, eventually there will have to be um, a time period 
where middle income economies um, and then industrializing economies will have to show a peak in their emissions. And I think it's responsibility of high income economies to help them along the way with that by making uh, the technologies more accessible and more affordable and so forth, um, especially helping out with financing. So I can understand some of the concerns that some economies in this part of the world in Southeast Asia have. So I think it's incumbent on high income economies to, to encourage them along the process and also acknowledging that rich economies uh, will reach a period of net zero emissions for emerging economies as well. Um, and obviously, you know, each country has its own interests. Australia um, is the world's largest exporter of coal. Um, Japan is a significant automaker. Indonesia, also an exporter of coal and also a heavy coal user for its domestic power sector. So there are domestic political issues, issues of political economy at play. But eventually, I think that the only alternative to not reaching net zero emissions by mid-century is an un unsustainable level of um, climate change. And that needs to be always considered. Even if we differentiate between the pace of change or the pace of the transition in high income economies vis-a-vis um, -vis industrialising economies. But I'd also like to point out that even in this part of the region, there have been changes, I guess, um, with individual countries. Um, so Japan and South Korea have stated anyway on paper that they will target carbon neutrality by 2050. Um, Indonesia recently was reported to have said that after its current pipeline of coal plant projects is completed, that they won't be building any more coal-fired power capacity. Countries such as um, Pakistan and the Philippines have announced moratoriums on new coal plant projects. Vietnam has built up solar power uh, to a massive scale very recently. So even in Asia, there are subtle shifts going on, and I think a turning point has been reached. I'll pick on a couple of words you mentioned there, I think really key. Um, three words, anyway, on paper <laughs> that you mentioned. Um, now, now, I, now, I, now I said that, because obviously there's been an absolute torrent of messaging from not just governments or net zero announcement you mentioned, South Korea, Japan, China, uh, among a few of them, but also the big fossil fuels companies and also automakers all announcing net zero targets over the last year or so. Um, to what extent, Peter, do you believe the messaging coming from these companies and how do we um, tell that what they're saying is genuine? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it's important to look at the details of what uh, these companies will come out with eventually as a result of these statements. Um, and to be fair, there's a wide variation in the level of commitment, um, what has actually been committed and the levels of details that have been released so far. Um, it's important to look at whether, you know, well, firstly, what these companies plan to do over the nearer term to reach whatever target they've set for 2050. Um, it's also important to look at what um, they're talking about scope one and two emissions, which are emissions purely from their own operations, or are they looking at uh, scope three emissions as well, as well, which is basically the emissions from further down the chain in terms of their sales of their fossil fuel products? Are they going to um, look at um, absolute reductions in emissions or just reductions in emissions intensity? 
So yes, I mean, if you look at all these commitments, they're becoming a lot more frequent. You know, I mean, there's now these days you could read about one of these every week. Um, last year was one every month. And then last year it was maybe sort of two or three a year, maybe two years ago or something. So they are becoming more frequent, which is encouraging. There are different levels of detail and also ambition. But I think it does suggest something of a turning point, however slow that may be. So I wouldn't just say it's all just greenwashing for its own sake, but over the next five years, the level of details uh, will demonstrate how serious these commitments are. So how hopeful are you, Peter, that we'll meet these um, 2050 net zero targets? And um, what sort of world will we be living in if we don't, in your view? It does mean an entire transformation of the global energy system. Uh, at the moment, fossil fuels account for about 80% of global energy supply. By 2050, this will be down to about 20%. Uh, but the scale of what needs to be done over the next 30 years is enormous in terms of uh, attracting the necessary capital. We need at least a doubling in the current level of annual investment in the energy sector. And the bulk of that needs to be directed towards low carbon items all across the energy spectrum. Uh, we also need the right policy frameworks to facilitate that capital. Uh, we also need to ensure that as the global economy goes through this energy transition, there is no region that is um, left behind and turns out being a loser. From that transition in terms of um, economic and job opportunities. Um, so it's going to take an enormous amount of political will uh, plus significant amounts of capital. Um, plus over, you know, trying to, I guess, push back against pockets of um, resistance to this change um, that still exists in some governments. Um, but however, having said that, I'd say that I'm a bit more hopeful than I would have been 12 or 18 months ago. Right. So, you know, we've we've done amazing things as a, a race before, right? We've landed on the moon, we've done other things. It's, it's not an insurmountable challenge, right? It's not, no. And there is still three decades to go, I guess. But really, the change needs to start now beyond state, statements, as I say, and there needs to be clear and detailed action in the nearer term. Uh, which means a sustained fall in annual emissions. But the technologies are there, either they're commercially applicable now or they're in the demonstration stage or at the very early stage of commercialization. Um, so I think the tools are there. It's just a matter of facilitating the capital, having the right policy frameworks in place um, and also having the political will to do so. Indeed. So we have the tools. We just need to do it. Peter Kiernan, thanks so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Thank you very much, Robin. This podcast was hosted by Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.